Listen, let me have you open your Bibles this morning to Hebrews chapter 1. That's where we're going to start. Before we get into the topic this morning, I just want to say this, that as Christians, we have both Good Friday and Easter. And what that means is this, on Good Friday, we weep over the sin that put Jesus on the cross. So we are given space in our faith to weep with those who weep, to come alongside what God has to say about the brokenness and frailty and fear of our world that we live in. And basically, before rushing to resurrection and the good news, we're okay lamenting, lingering over Good Friday, pondering grim realities. And I just say this morning, I tend to wake up on Sunday mornings with a psalm that my dad would always say, waking us up on a Sunday morning, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. That's my temperament. That's my norm that I wake up with. But I also look at our nation and think of this last week and think another tragedy upon tragedy goes on on our screens, on our news. I spent the week in Indianapolis this last week and the latest half-mast flags flying at federal buildings is because of a shooting in Indianapolis a few days ago. Another traffic stop, another dead brown body. Our nation is reeling from hurt and pain. And as Christians, we don't lament as the rest of the world laments. We lament, but we have hope. So church, I would just say to you, I say this to myself this morning, on this morning, Sunday, as we gather for worship, let's keep our eyes fixed on the hope of Jesus Christ. Man, those truths that we just sang are so powerful. The church of God weeps but we don't weep as those without hope. We work diligently for change, all the while understanding God's the one who, who, who changes. God's the one who's going to fix this. I don't know about you, but I long for a better here, but all the while recognize that here is not my home. This is not what I'm eternally going to be uh, celebrating. So church, uh, again, along with me, as we have our scriptures open, as we were just singing, um, I pray that this morning we're singing like we mean it. Uh, As we pray, I pray that we will pray like we need it. I pray that right now you will listen like you believe it. I pray that as we celebrate communion, it'll be like celebrating communion for the very first time. As we praise, we'll praise like God deserves it. As we rest on this Sabbath day, we will rest like God is really on his throne. So that's where I'm at this morning Um, I have the mic, so I get to share where I'm at. Um, We're together, so as we linger after service, we can share where where one another is at. All right, hope you're in Hebrews chapter 1. We'll get there in one second. Five years ago, I had two five-year-olds that are now 10-year-olds. I did the math twice on this. That that, that all checks out. Um, And these two five-year-olds were taken out by mom to a movie theater, which is a huge deal in a big family because we most often watch our movies at home uh, because we like to eat. And in a big family, you either go out to the movies or you eat. It's it's one or the other. Uh, The funds don't allow for both. But once in a while, it's a treat to get to go out. And mom had the two five-year-olds out at the theater. And after the movie was over, the two five-year-olds said, hey, can we run around the theater and kind of stretch our legs? Everyone was leaving. That was fine. My wife was privy to the fact that there was going to be a scene at the very end, because this was a Pixar film. So she sat through all the credits. The theater is almost completely empty. So while she's waiting for that, um, mom calls the kids back. And my little five-year-old Kaya comes and lets mom know about the treasures that she has discovered in this magical place called a movie theater. She said, mom, people leave food behind when they leave. She said, we got to eat M&Ms and popcorn and licorice, and we got to drink tons of different kinds of soda. Now, my little Kaya is really astute with people, and she could tell from mom's face that mom wasn't too pleased by this, and she said, oh, don't worry. We only took a little sip of each of the sodas. We left some of the candy for others. She wanted to make sure that mom knew she didn't take it all. So I say this because of this. We are all born with a fundamental need to change our thinking about food and drink. 
Kaya's here in the front row. Fortunately, Kaya does not do this anymore when we take her to the theaters. Five years has had its work on her. We're talking appetites this morning, and I don't need to convince anyone in this room or anyone watching now or in the future uh, that, that part of the fall is a struggling relationship and an ongoing struggling relationship with food and drink. Sin nature allows these good gifts, food and drink, to become masters over us. What is true physically for our bodies holds true spiritually for our souls as well. We're starting a brand new series this morning, uh, and it's seven weeks to look at the seven I am statements of Jesus Christ found in the Gospel of John. We're basically letting Jesus speak for himself, Jesus in his own words. Today's is this, I am the bread of life. Now remember Easter eggs. Easter eggs are not just for Sunday sermon on Easter. Uh, They are hidden amongst the text. They are hidden amongst God's creation. They are hidden in the events of our lives. And if we're paying attention, we see worlds of meaning to things. Each of the I am statements that Jesus is going to make is like a little Easter egg. It's loaded with meaning. In fact, it's loaded with layers of meaning, and I hope to show that to you this morning. So bear with me as we get a little bit technical looking back at some things. Jesus is unmistakably connecting himself and his identity to the God of history, to the creator God of the universe, and to the God of the ancient Jewish texts. So by saying, I'm the bread of life, and in the succession, the ones that will be coming up, that is what he is doing. Here's a good question that people ask. What is God? Now, I'm sitting in a Christian church this morning, and most Christians would think, wait a minute, that's wrong. We should be asking, who is God, right? But who is God predetermines that we think God is a person and not an object. And that's not a given for people around the world. What is God? Now, if I were to ask my kids, I'm not going to put them on the spot, but my kids are sitting in the front row. My kids would know the answer to this. I'm absolutely confident they would know how to answer this. Here's the answer they would give. Kaya, do you want to try it? Go ahead. What is God? God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. She nailed it. Now, why does she know that? Because we do a question and answer thing as a family. And we ask these questions of one another, and we quiz each other, and the kids often know it better than the adults do in the house, and we we go back and forth. Why? Because we think it's really important to understand what is God. And when someone someone comes and challenges you on that, or someone comes and asks you, say, hey, do you know what God is? You say, I absolutely do. What is God? He's the creator and sustainer of everything. How many persons are there in God? There are three persons in one God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That's another one of the questions. By the way, we are using a resource called the New City Catechism, which I would highly recommend to you. Uh, We've been doing this as a family now. There's 52 of these question and answers. It's sort of taking some of the more complex catechisms of the past, and it breaks them down. 52 questions, 52 weeks in a year. We're grabbing one per week and studying it as a family and just reviewing as we go along. It's been a dynamite resource. It sits on your phone as well, so it's a fun way to kind of go about it. These are vital questions. What is God? Well, God's actually a person. How many persons are there in God? Well, there's three persons in one God. Our only hope in knowing what God is like is divine self-revelation. Without divine self-revelation, we are, it's a free-for-all. We all just make up our own answer. We all just think up what we can kind of piecemeal together. Even with divine self-revelation, We are prone to idolatry. You shall have no other gods before me. Why does God give that in the Ten Commandments? Because we're prone to idolatry. Even with self-divine revelation, we are prone to make up our own God. Now, you may be making up God if one of the two following conditions exist. If your God never questions or counters what you do say, think, or feel, you may be guilty of idolatry. In fact, I'm almost positive you're guilty of idolatry. So here's a question. Does God ever confront me? Does God ever cross me? If not, you're committing idolatry. You are making up a God in your own image. Here's a second one. If your God is always fashionable, 
always current with the times and never making waves, I can assure you, you're guilty of the crime, the, the sin of idolatry. We see this in the life of Jesus. We see that God has always made waves with culture around him. If you're new to the Bible, if you're new to Christianity, if you're watching for the first time at church service, let me just say this, that, that the Christian God of the Bible claims to be the one true God. That's the status he claims. And he names Jesus of Nazareth as his only son. This idea of I am, Jesus is going to say over and over again, I am. Today, I am the bread of life. I am is woven through the Bible because God is a self-revealing God. Genesis 15, 7, and he said to him, I am the Lord your God who brought you out, of, uh, out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Exodus chapter 20, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. What I've just put, even though I am is woven from Genesis all the way through Revelation, are two mammoth moments in this redemptive arc, this redemptive story that God is writing. The first one is to Abraham, and the second one is to Moses. And both of these I am moments, God launches the story forward. He is giving each of these men, Abraham and Moses, a special word, a covenant, a new way of relating to him. And he is guiding them out of one place into a new and better place, Abraham and Moses. I bring up all this history because of this. Jesus comes on the scene, and Jesus is the last in a long line of Old Testament prophets. Prophets were people who came on the scene and spoke for God. Often judgment, saying you're sinning, change your ways, or else there's wrath coming. So Jesus comes along, he's the last in line of the prophets speaking for this God, only he's unlike any other prophet in this. He not only speaks of God, but he speaks as God. So a prophet comes along and they are a mouthpiece for God. They speak of God, but none of them would dare speak as God because that's punishable by death. It's called blasphemy, thinking that we are God. So none of them would dare do that. But Jesus was altogether different. He speaks of this God. He speaks for this God. And he speaks as God. Read your Bible. That's the reason Jesus was killed. Ultimately, it was God. But it was the reason that Jews had to kill Jesus. Jesus gets this question quite a bit. Who are you? Who are you, Jesus? Sometimes it's spoken out loud. We see record in the Gospels of people saying, who are you? Sometimes it's people thinking it. When Jesus stills the storm, the disciples are going, who is this guy in the boat with us? People regularly say this um, and, and think it about him. But he also gets this question, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Usually this is said by red-faced religious authorities. They're ticked off because Jesus has crossed them in some way and, and usually exposed them in some way. And because God is a relational God, because he relates to us, Jesus answers these questions. Who are you? Who do you think you are? And that's what we're going to be looking at. Think about how we answer this question. Let's take the last one first. If I come to you and I say, who do you think you are? What goes on inside of you when someone says that to you? I'll tell you, for me, it's defensiveness. Who do I think I am? I've got a list of reasons. Let me go after it. Or it's indignation. Who are you to ask me who I think I am? Jesus does neither of those. In fact, he astounds even people putting him on trial for how he answers these kinds of questions. Who do you think you are? Jesus answers altogether different than, than most of us would. How about this other one? Who are you? Now, let me make some broad generalizations, which can tend to lead to trouble, but let me just say it anyways, that men will often skip names and immediately go right to what we do. Men tend to relate to each other. In fact, they won't ask the question, who are you? They will say what? They'll say, what do you do? I just was traveling this week. I sat next to people on the plane, and, and that's where the conversation went. I was, just, I was just paying attention to what was going on. We skip over a name, we immediately ask what we do. In fact, the guy I rode from Indianapolis to Denver with, we talked for an hour and a half 
And you're the end of the flight. I said, by the way, what's your name? I'm Dave. (laughs) Uh, Many women would think that's psychotic to sit next to someone for a long period of time having a really in-depth conversation about all kinds of topics and not even know their name. I think if I didn't bring it up, we would have both been content not to know each other's name. So what do you do? Now, it's not so bad that we identify with what we do, men. In fact, I think this is, a, this is embedded into who we are. So long as what you do doesn't define you. If what you do defines you, then here's what happens. You lose your job, you lose your identity. You lose your job, you lose your sense of who you are. You lose your value, your worth. So sometimes people tie it in that way. Or you begin to climb and become really successful and you begin to treat other people around you as if your title means that's who you are. And so, and so that's where it turns into sin. But what we do is tied to who we are. It does give a sense of what we're all about. You see, I'm not just a pastor by job, but I'm a, per- I'm a pastor by personality, by calling. In fact, this guy, Jim, uh, who's from Spokane, Washington, he's an iron worker. And we sat there and talked. He's actually going to be in San Jose this week. He flies all over the country for his work. And as we were talking, we talked for a long time. We'd already covered his job and some different things. And finally, he goes, oh, what do you do? And I said, oh, well, I'm a pastor. And immediately, he goes, oh, that's why you're so easy to talk to. You see, I'm not a pastor, and so I try to make it easy to talk to me. I'm a pastor because that's just who I am. So when you say, like, this is who I am and what I do, those are, are tied together, and that's okay. You know, God reveals himself this way, connecting his work to what he does. Let's think back to this Exodus passage for a second. He says, I am the Lord your God, listen, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. What is God doing? He's identifying who he is by what he did. You know what he goes on to do right here? Give the Ten Commandments. I am the God who did this. Remember that. And now I'm going to give you commandments on how to live well this life of freedom. Because freedom's awesome, but freedom's dangerous. So then he goes on to list the Ten Commandments. So God reveals himself by what he does. Women. Women tend more toward describing themselves by relationships by who belongs to them, by who they belong to, by how they're interconnected. And they will find that deeply satisfying in in, in discussing this kind of thing. So Becky, my wife, might say that she's Ethan's mom. She's Steve and Wendy's uh, daughter. She's Tammy's sister. She's Dave's husband. So that might be the way that, that she sort of discusses and opens up a conversation. God reveals himself this way too. In fact, he does this regularly. I'm going to read something, and you're going to immediately go, oh, yeah, that's right. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Just, just Google sometimes the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you'll find just tons of references in the Old Testament to God revealing himself relationally, connecting it to people and relationships. Isn't that cool? It's cool to know that God, re- God relates himself and sort of reveals himself by what he does and who he belongs to and who belongs to him. So knowing and delighting in the real Jesus is absolutely urgent in any age, but it feels all the more urgent in this age. I've lived long enough to watch different cycles of people attack the historical Jesus, attack the validity of the Gospels, and on and on it goes. That's nothing new. But there is a There is appealing a way to, as James was introducing the solid rock song, there's appealing a way of objective, knowable reality, facts that don't change. And many, many Christians, many who name the name of Jesus, are pulling away because of cultural pressure from a biblical, just very historical, uh, middle-of-the-road Christianity. And they they are pulling away from that. Reconciliation with our Creator is our greatest happiness, and vital to that is His Son, Jesus Christ. It does not happen without Jesus. So knowing who Jesus is, is vital to our good. Hebrews chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Jesus is God in a form and language most familiar to us. He's embodied, shows up as a baby, grows up, Eats, goes to weddings, 
travels, does these different things. We relate to that. We recognize that. He speaks words that we can know and understand. Here's what Hebrews 1.1 says. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Church, we ought to sit with Hebrews 1, 1 to 3 open in front of us regularly. As we read the Gospels and think of who is having a conversation with the woman by the well, who is walking along discussing fig trees, who is in the temple discussing and arguing with religious leaders, we ought to have this picture in our mind. As we sing the name of Jesus, as Jonathan just saying, the, the name that never grows old, we ought to hold in our mind who we are talking to. It's the exact imprint of God, and, that, and, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. All right, you're in Hebrews, turn to John 6. We'll we'll linger in John 6 the rest of the morning. I want you to think of a time that you have been fundamentally misunderstood, not in a small way, but in a big way. Not just misunderstood, but really misrepresented. Who you were was, was not identified correctly. You weren't seen properly. That's really a frustrating exercise. And you're left pondering, do I, do I try to correct it or is this a lost cause? Am I just not going to be known for who I really am? People can get the wrong idea so easily about us and it can be really, really difficult to undo that. Remember that God is a person. What do you do with people? You relate to people. God's not a force, a philosophy, a truth, or an ideal. So at the start of the I Am series... While you're in John 6, I want you just to jot down or think about Exodus 3. And I want to take you to Exodus 3 in your mind. You don't need to turn there. But it's a really familiar passage of Scripture. And we're going to return to Exodus 3 many times because each of the I Am statements is pointing back to it. God draws Moses near to have a conversation. God's a creative God. He does things that are just creative and out of the box. And just like we would expect from God, he does this in a very creative way. A little brush fire that's not going away. This bush that's just eternally burning. And so that kind of piques Moses' curiosity. He comes over. And it's like God saying, hey, I want to have a conversation with you. And Moses, you know, looks over his shoulder. He's like, you talking to me? And he's like, wait a minute, you're talking. Like you're a bush. How are we having a conversation right now? And God gives Moses a task. He wants him to go to Pharaoh to have his people set free from slavery. And in Exodus 3, 13, just listen to this. Then Moses said to God, he's having a conversation with God. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. God gives Moses a task. Moses says, got it, I'm going to Pharaoh, that sounds pretty scary. When I go to the people and I say, here it is, who sent me, what am I supposed to tell them? What's God's answer? What's his name as Moses asked for it? I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I don't have time this morning to get into the language of this, but let me just say this. What God is saying is this, there is any, uh, that, that he is the eternally existing, mind-defying, powerful God, and he identifies himself as I am, ever-existing, ever-present, ever-relevant, all-powerful, all-knowing. That's who's being sent to the people of Israel. Tell them that, Moses. And each time Jesus says, I am the bread of life, I am, he, the, the, the way he says it, the emphasis he says it with, harkens back to Exodus 3. The God who said, I am, is the one sending Moses. And then what does he do? He accomplishes it. So John 16, and by the way, I want to put that history in our minds because undoubtedly that history is in the minds of Jesus' first hearers. 
So we need to get there. The Jews did not need to get there. They knew that. Now we get to our first I am statement in John 6, where John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Come to Jesus, believe in Jesus. You will have your appetites satisfied. Now, how do you catch all that's in the statement, I am the bread of life? Context is king. That's what my profs always said at Sunday Christian. Context is king. And it's true today, isn't it? Sound bites lie. You can make sound bites say whatever you want. And people do that every single night on the news, all the time in a headline. That's what clickbaits you. You're like, oh, that's not really what he said. So context is king. I am the bread of life. If you begin to just expand outward the immediate context, we're just going to look at John 6. You begin to see more of what he is talking about. So, Here's how I'm going to break it down this morning. If you're taking notes, you can do this. That Jesus is the new and better. We're going to look at something immediate. We're going to look at something in the past. And we're going to look at something in the future. Why? Because that's what John 6 does. John 6 does that exact same thing. Okay? So Jesus in the immediate. Jesus is the new and better five-course meal. Jesus is as relevant as the next meal you will eat. If you have a hard time thinking about God and keeping Jesus at the center of your life, we're going to get to this. But keep praying before your meals. In fact, I hope today to revitalize your prayer before your meal. Jesus is as relevant and present as the next meal you will be consuming. So Jesus has drawn this huge crowd out in the wilderness. They followed him because he's healing sick people miraculously. Free health care. And the best kind of health care. It's spoken and it's done. And this is where Jesus begins the discussion on Bread. James read the account of the feeding of the 5,000. I love that he asked Philip, hey, Philip, where do you think we're going to get bread for all these people? He already knew what he was going to do. He's bringing up the bread discussion. He feeds them and there's plenty of leftovers. That was yesterday. Today, the people come and find him on the far side of the lake. And, it's, um, and, and, and an important truth is discovered. In fact, Jesus exposes this important truth. That not all come to Jesus moments are the same. I kind of don't like that phrase, to be honest, because people are often like, I had my come to Jesus moment. And really, it's not Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. It's not Jesus, the one who upholds the universe. It said kind of flippantly, like I had a light bulb flipped on. But come to Jesus moments are in the scripture. And not all come to Jesus moments are the same. Maybe you've tasted of this. You're like, I had a come to Jesus moment, and then it faded. I had another one, and it faded. I thought I must be doing it wrong, so I tried it a different way. I had a different come to Jesus moment, and I'm still not sure I'm really with Jesus. Not all come to Jesus moments are the same. Look at John 6, 26. John 6, 26, Jesus answered them. They've come and they found him. Oh, there you are, Jesus. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me. It sounds good, good start, but listen. Not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. What's their come to Jesus moment all about? Free food. What will people do for free food? As a pastor of this church, I've witnessed the opening of two Chick-fil-A's, one in Santa Clara, one uh, not far from my house. What happens at Chick-fil-A is when they open a store, if you are the first, whatever, 100 customers, you get free Chick-fil-A for a year, 52 meals to dine on for free. So what do people do in front of Chick-fil-A when it's about to open? They camp out. Uh, I happen to know one person that camped out at the Santa Clara one, and he got free Chick-fil-A for a year. I know another couple that camped out at the local one, the the, the close one to me, and they got free Chick-fil-A for a year. I am not saying this to point fingers. I'm honestly saying it because I'm a little bit envious. I could not get anyone in my family to camp out with me. I was like, let's do this. Free food. I'll tell you what, Carlson's are known for waiting in long lines for free food. We will do this at yogurt on yogurt day. We'll hang out. I mean, it, we, we tip all the scales because when we go show up, man, we, we, we load up on free food. We do a lot for free food. Here's what Jesus is doing. Jesus then and now, he weans us off the small prize. And he wants to lift our head to something much grander. Free Chick-fil-A for a year? Woohoo! Man, like 12 hours of my life in a dirty parking lot? I'm all about that. Let's do it. Honestly, a few years from then, 
a year doesn't seem like that, like that big a deal. Yeah, I got some chicken, right? Jesus weans us. He's weaning these people. Don't just look for the free meal. Something way bigger is going on in front of your face. Verse 27, he says this, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Man, what a great phrase just to put in front of your, your, your desk, if you have a desk, or if you're, if, you're a, if you're a mom at home, put it on the window when you're doing dishes. Whatever your job is where you spend lots of time working, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him, God the Father has set His seal Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. Ready for it? If you're taking notes, this is the thing to write down. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Bread in this context, as we we move on, bread has way more to do than, than just with something physically you eat. It is what you seek. It is what you work for. Jesus says, lay down your striving and receive the gift of me, the bread of life. What is their response? He says, stop striving for, work, for, for food that doesn't last. I will, the, the Father will give it to you. What's their next words? Their next words is, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Man's pride, then and now, has a hard time with the gospel. The rationale is, surely I must do something to save myself. Surely I must do something to satisfy my appetite. Surely I'm involved in the process of my own good and happiness and healing and wholeness. It can't be that simple. It's too humbling. The gospel is too humbling for people to receive it. When Jesus says, let me give it to you, they say, what must we do? How much can we pay you for it? What are the works of God? And Jesus answers quite simply, it's to believe in me. It's to believe what I just told you three seconds ago. I'm going to give it to you. Now, it's not bad to work to put bread on the table, but that is not ultimate. Jesus lifts their eyes. Do you know that every single person that I'm looking at right now, every single one of us, if I had a mirror, I'd put it up to myself too. Every one of us will work for something. We will all give ourselves to something. We cannot help it. What are you giving yourself to? What are you striving for? Work for food that lasts. What's the work of God? Believe. What does Jesus say he's going to do with that food? I'm going to give it to you. The thing you need most, I'm giving it away. Believe in me, says Jesus. All right. Jesus, the bread of life, is as relevant as your next meal, and the bread of life connects to the past. That's where Jesus goes because the crowd takes the conversation there. It takes it into the past. They said basically this, signs have always accompanied our prophets. What is your sign? Moses gave bread in the wilderness. You got any more bread? I think they're still stuck on bread, to be honest. They're trying to goad him into bread. Hey, if you're a prophet, why don't you make some bread? The side of waffle fries. And I like barbecue sauce and Chick-fil-A sauce. John 6, 32, 32, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you, present tense, true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have not seen me, and yet you do not believe. That you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. 
For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. All right, so first he corrects this. It wasn't Moses that gave you bread. Stop looking to people as your Savior. Does that preach to your soul today? It preaches to mine. Stop looking to people. The hero of that story is not Moses. Moses was a frail human being, a fallen sinner in need of a Savior just like anyone else. Then Jesus clearly is connecting himself to the one creator, God. He places himself squarely in the bigger story that's going on. He's telling him this, I can do more for you than feed you for a day or for 40 years in the wilderness. I not only give sustenance, I am sustenance, present tense. Again, the language of the I am in this statement in John is emphatic. It harkens back to Exodus 3.14. I am who I am is the name of God. Feast on me, Jesus says, and you will receive nourishment that your soul craves. You have your deepest longings filled. Can we agree that if God created us, and created our appetites, that surely some, like all of our appetites, are able to be fulfilled in a God-honoring way. The Bible says, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. That means every appetite that you have, every desire and passion that you have, is able to to meet its fulfillment in a God-glorifying way. But appetites, even though they're from God, they have a way of leading us straight to God. Think about the prodigal son. Why did the prodigal son return to the father? Because of his appetite. He was starving. He was dining with pigs. He's like, surely there's a better plan for my life than this. His appetite led him to humbly repent. But our appetites can also lead us in exactly the opposite direction. I have a hunger for this, I have a thirst for this, I have a craving for this, I have a need for this, and I know I can't meet that in God. So I'm going to go meet it in some other way. Think about this. Trace back your deepest regrets. Go back to that moment, that day, that period of life where you go, if I could just have a do-over with that one. Trace back your deepest regrets. They will reveal appetites that you were satisfying apart from God. Is adultery in your family history? Trace it back. Revenge? Gossip? Greed? Pride? All of those are trying to meet a need, trying to fill an appetite, trying to quench a thirst apart from God. God gives us appetite, which means there's a legitimate way to fill them. A couple weeks ago, I was going four-wheeling with my buddy Jameson from our church, you know Jameson, and his little nephew Jordan. I'm tucking Eli in, my 10-year-old, um, yes, one of the ones that went around the theater uh, eating disgusting things that were leftovers, um, or being frugal with our money, I'm not sure which, he got a free meal. Um, I'm tucking Eli in, and we're going to go four-wheeling the next day. And it was a sweet little moment to bring up appetites. I didn't know I was really preaching on this. This was just separate apart from it, but it came to my mind. And we just thanked God for the appetite of adventure. I said, Eli, you've got an appetite for adventure just like your dad. God's put it there. And we're going to be so filled up tomorrow. Aren't you pumped about tomorrow? And he was just like, ah, he couldn't wait. So as we prayed that night, we just thanked God for the appetite of adventure and the way that we get to fill it. We just prayed, God, like as, as we get to go do this, like we get to go four-wheeling. Not because we're out running people who are chasing us from our homes, which is a reality for people in this world. Just for sport, just for fun. And so we prayed, God, would you let us be a blessing to little Jordan? Would you let us be a blessing to Jameson? God, we're on the lookout. Would you let us be a blessing to people around us? As we fill this appetite, we are bringing God into this. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, including four-wheeling, do all to the glory of God. This is how I know to do this. We just, we just pray. We just invited God into our adventure the next day. That is a lesser appetite, meaning the appetite for adventure, being connected to our ultimate appetite. And I'll tell you what, four-wheeling 
with that frame of mind is all the more sweeter because God's right in the middle of it. I'm not hitting pause as a pastor. Well, let me not do spiritual work. Let me go do something fun for a while. I'm not hitting pause at all. I'm bringing these together. I'm integrating these together. And honestly, it made four-wheeling all the more sweeter. And we did get to be a blessing to other people. It was amazing. When you look for it, things show up like that. God answered that prayer. So here's what I want you to do. I told you I'd, I'd, I'd challenge you to renew maybe a habit that you picked up as a kid. Uh, maybe you were brought up with this. Maybe you weren't. But renew prayer before mealtime. Renew it this way. Thank God for the food. Yes. By all means. But also, while you're praying, I've been doing this for a couple of years now. It's kind of weird, but do it. It's, it's really powerful. Even while you're praying, just put your nose close to your, close to your food. Smell it. You know when you're really hungry and you smell food? Like, for me, I start to salivate. My stomach growls like, let's go! Let's get the program moving forward here. I always like, God, please let my dad pray a short prayer because I'm really hungry today after some practice. As you're praying, thank God for the food, but also feel your hunger. Smell the food. Thank God for meeting the small hunger and let it be a pointer to, uh, to, to being infinitely more thankful for God satisfying your ultimate hunger. God, I'm going to eat this in just a moment. And a few moments later, I won't even really think about it. I just won't be hungry anymore. But right now, as I'm hungry, as this smells good, as I'm anticipating something really good and tasty, ultimately, I'm nourished by you. I'm totally satisfied in you. Gain the nourishment and pleasure of the meal and company that you enjoy and rest in the nourishment and satisfaction of filling up on Christ. Isn't it cool to know that if you're reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, literally you will never go hungry again. You will always have more than enough. You will eat your fill and have plenty. Now, that doesn't mean that the body's wasting away. There are people right now suffering for their faith. They are going hungry physically for their faith. Some people during Lent season intentionally fasted. What's that doing? That's denying your physical appetites to stir up and remind yourself of your spiritual needs, your spiritual appetite, guarding your inner appetites so that you rule over them, not the other way around. All right, let's move forward. Next, Jesus points to the future realities. So they take it back to the past. Hey, where's your signs? And Jesus says, man, that sign actually points to me. I'm the new and better manna from heaven. Now he points it forward. Listen to how Jesus steers his hearers to future realities. A way of eating that cheats death. Verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him. Shocker. Because he said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Verse 43, Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Looking ahead. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. He reiterates it here in verse 48. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread. That came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give, and the, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Man, John 6 is a powerful chapter. In this one chapter of the Bible, we actually see how all the stories, symbols, and signs, all the Easter eggs, from the Old Testament, point ahead to Jesus. He uniquely fulfills them like manna from heaven. He's the better manna from heaven, the final manna from heaven, the eternal manna from heaven. And because we have the New Testament, we can look back on Jesus and see how it points back to the life and work 
of Jesus. We're about to celebrate communion. We can think of our minds when he says, if anyone will eat this bread, he'll live forever. And the bread that I give you for the, for the life of the world is my flesh. Doesn't our brain fast forward to communion, the Last Supper, to, uh, to, to Good Friday, where Jesus sacrifices his body as the sacrificial lamb on behalf of the world? Hear this, Jesus as the bread of life is so much more than just the communion elements, but it's certainly not less. As we celebrate communion, think about what Jesus says, take, eat of it, all of you. You want to have a part of me? Take and eat this flesh. As we celebrate communion in just a moment, I want you to ponder the metaphor uh, that Jesus gives with eating bread. Think about the thing we're about to eat for a moment, okay? You make the choice to eat it or not eat it. You can't tell this online, but we don't have giant bouncers in here cramming communion at once down people's throat. You make an individual choice this morning to eat the bread or not to eat the bread. That's how it is with Jesus. Each one of us must personally eat. We don't eat it for you. Megan's sitting over here. Megan can't eat her food, and then I just go, well, Megan ate it. I guess I'm good. Each person eating bread must eat it themselves. How about this? As you chew this up in just a moment, you're going to chew it up. You're going to swallow it. The moment you do that, it is now a part of you. It's inextricably a part of you, in fact. You cannot get that bread out from you, reconstruct it, and have it be separate from you. It is is now forever a part of you. You will glean the nourishment that you need from it. Finally, eating is a common, ongoing act, not a one-time event. Man, all these things and more are sitting there for us. Let me bring this home with, with some action items. How do I apply this? How do I make sure I obey the command Jesus is clearly giving me? Eat the flesh of Jesus. It's true food. Drink the blood of Jesus. It's true drink. I don't want to make sure I'm doing that. Is that just communion or is it something more? It's something more and let me walk you through it. So here's the action. If you're taking notes, jot these things down. Number one is this. Start with grace. What is the work of God according to Jesus? What is the work of God according to Jesus? Don't miss this. It's belief. Hear this really clearly. God is looking for believers, not workers. God is looking for believers, not workers. What is the work of God? Trust me. Take me at my word. Believe in me. What does it mean to feast on the bread of life? Well, every time you trust what God says about you, you're eating the bread of life. Every time you trust God uh, about the way he says that life works, Do this, don't do this. Don't you dare go outside these guardrails. It's death for you. Maybe not immediately, but I promise you it's death for you. Every time you trust God on how he says the world works, you're eating the bread of life. Every time you trust God with what is to come, you are doing the work of God. You're believing. Hebrews 13, 9, just jot this down. Hebrews 13, 9 through 10 says this. Do not... Be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. Church, there are many, many people being led away by diverse and strange teachings. Feast on grace. Man, This idea has loads of implications for the urgent evangelism. Don't believe the lie that that we're all naturally saved. Remember, we are all born fundamentally needing to change what we think about food and drink, about our appetites, about what satisfies, about what we're giving ourselves to. The only way to eat the bread of life is to receive it as a gift of grace. The moment you want to pay for it, the moment you want to earn it, it's no longer the bread of life. It's something else. It will not nourish and satisfy and stay with you like the bread of life. Here's number two. Eat the bread of life every day. You eat the flesh of Jesus, the true food of Jesus, by being intimate with him. 
This means a heart devoted to Him. How do you do that? It means regular prayer life. It means a steady diet of God's Word. It just means simple obedience. Every act of obedience is another bite of the true food that God offers us in Jesus. Today, this afternoon, when you have an impulse to whack your little brother and you say no, that's another bite. That's being sustained on the bread of Jesus Christ. When you say no to temptation and sin, when you walk in humility, when you, um, when, when, when you, when you humbly receive the yes of God's commands, you are feasting. You are being satisfied and nurtured in Him. You ever notice the inverted relationship? The more physical food you eat, the less you want. It's exactly opposite spiritually. The more spiritual food that you eat, the more you crave. I have not filled up. I hope that when I'm still doing this five years, ten years from now, Lord willing, I will keep feasting as ravenous as ever and paying attention that I'm not filling up. Eat the bread of life every day. Like manna, you can't store up Jesus, all that you need for the coming week today in in church. Any more than you could do this physically. You can't store up manna. You can't store up Jesus. Jesus teaches us to take it a day at a time. What's the Lord's Prayer? Give us this day our daily, what? Bread. Grace for today. Trouble has enough for today. Take it day at a time. Don't be fooled into thinking that because you asked Jesus into your heart, whatever that means, or ate Jesus, the flesh of Jesus, back at summer camp, that you're good. You've got all the nourishment that you need. Those who are his have an appetite for more of him year after year after year. And I promise you, those of you who've tasted the real Jesus, you are not satisfied unless you keep having more of the real Jesus, the bread of life over time. Here's number three, repent and renounce striving for any other bread. This is a painful exercise, I know, because I did it this week. Every good pastor should be preaching the sermon well before he preaches it to anyone else, to himself, over and over and over again. Repent and renounce striving for any other bread. Let your bad food choices and spiritual indigestion change your mind about how you eat the next time. You ever eat something, you're like, I'm going to pay for this. I've been eating a big old burrito going, this is a bad food choice. I just keep eating. Guess what? I pay for it. I used to not pay for it. Now I pay for it. That's the way the the, the human body works. Do this spiritually as well. Let it change your mind. God will root out lesser appetites that have become idols because he won't tolerate them. Some of these are obvious sins. Those are sometimes the easiest ones. But others are good things that you've let become ruling things, ultimate things. Is a meal and drink good? Absolutely. It's a gift from God. Thank God for it. But that can begin to rule over us. Ask God, is there any wicked way in me? Ask if your striving is from being satisfied in Him or for being satisfied. And if it's for being satisfied in something else, repent. Renounce it. Man, this is why we need the spiritual family. Every single one of us has many, many, many blind spots. And if we deny that, that's a giant one saying, well, there's your first one that you deny that you have blind spots. So we need our church family around us. Money is a common bread that people get tripped up over. The Bible speaks of it regularly. In fact, we even call it dough. Kind of interesting. Luke 16, 13, Jesus said this, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate one and love the other or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. Then he puts it succinctly, you cannot serve God and money. If money is your bread of life, where you find your nourishment, where you find your joy, where you find your satisfaction, repent. You're spiritually sick because of that. Christ in us is the result of eating the bread of life. He is our teacher and power. Listen to Titus 2. For the grace of God has appeared, it's Jesus, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. Church, evaluate your diet. How is it going? Hebrews 13, 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their life and imitate their faith. 
If you have a personal trainer and you are paying the personal trainer to get you in shape and they are not in shape, fire your personal trainer. I mean, don't you want visible signs that they know what they're talking about, that it works, that they're actually doing it? And same for your spiritual leaders. If you're being mentored by someone in the faith, if you're a community group leader, if you're a pastor, elder in a church, you ought to be looking to your leaders and say, let me look at the outcome of their life. There better be, there better be visible, tangible signs that this life of faith, that feasting on the bread of life really seems to be what that person's about. Then imitate it. Here's number four. Keep feasting with the family. Let me talk to those sitting in this room today. You are feasting with the family of God today. Even in a hard week like this, another hard week in our country, I couldn't wait to come feast with the family today. Feast with the family. Whosoever may come means that we are all individually called to receive eternal life, to each individually feast on the bread. And God saves us out of the world's orphanage into a family of faith. A family that feasts together, thrives together. You know, when kids join a family, a forever family, from some kind of a difficult place, foster care, orphanages, some kind of brokenness, there's almost always a need, not just for a change in eating practices, but a fundamental thought change regarding food and drink. Many don't know how to eat in a loving family where there is plenty of food. What it takes for the parents is repetition, patience, wisdom, and just boatload after boatload of grace to see them through to a new way of getting their appetites met. Kids need to learn. They no longer need to hoard food. They don't need to hide food. They don't need to lie about food. They don't need to worry about food. They don't need to feel ashamed about food. There is plenty to eat every single day. And you get to be a kid. You don't need to worry about this. I'm your dad. I've got this. All you got to do is show up. You just show up and receive it. That's it. Additionally, there are new rituals to mealtime. Christians, we stop and we give thanks. Again, not just for the food and the company, but for the place we hold in the family for the bigger realities it points to. We get to practice love, loving one another right around that table, taking turns. And then we get to dream up ways of being a blessing to those around us. Church, do not give up feasting with your family. Listen to this. They can't eat it for you, but they can eat it with you. And there is great good in that. There's God designed in that. Just as a child wasn't meant to be rescued uh, out of an orphanage, brought into a family, and then just left alone to eat. They are to eat with a family. And there's so much filling that is, that is with that. Let me bring the, the band up right now. This from a hymn called Himself by Albert Simpson. Listen to this lyric. Once it was the blessing, now it is the Lord. Once it was the feeling, now it is his word. Once his gift I wanted, now the giver own. Once I sought for healing, now himself alone. Church, just close your eyes for a moment. I I say that, you don't have to, but just as a way of sort of like removing distraction. There's nothing to see up here. Church, in our sin, we... Like the Jews in John 6, we will seek out Jesus for what we can get, immediate gratification, a free meal. In our sins, we will devote ourselves to that which can never satisfy. We will work for the bread, strive for the bread that inevitably lets us down. What's more, as Christians, we'll ask God to bless this behavior and we'll get mad when God doesn't answer the prayer, giving us what we want. Like the Jews in John 6, in our sin, we will demand a sign before we obey. God, I'll do this, but let me see a sign first. And like the Jews in John 6, in our sin, we will be repulsed by his instruction to eat this flesh and drink this blood. 
Oh God, help us. We sang this earlier, we're we're sheep that are prone to wander, but you're the good shepherd, God. You have found good pasture for us. You prepare a table, a feast, right in the very midst of our enemies on all sides encamped around us. No explanation of why we should be peacefully feasting except for God alone, except for that we feast on the bread of life. We have all that we need. And what's more, we reflect this morning that we're given it as pure gift. It's settled and secure in our account. Nothing we do can add to it. Nothing we do could ever take it away. Oh God, I pray that as right now we take the elements we hold them in our hands. We, we lead our family. We take it as roommates. We take it as an individual. God, that it would just be a pointer, a reminder that we are in you and you in us. Jesus, you nourish us spiritually. You satisfy us completely. We will never, ever, ever be disappointed by the bread of life. Thank you. We receive it today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 